Hey guys, on today's episode, we're going to be discussing Moneyball. We do recommend you watch the movie ahead of time. It'll make the conversation more interesting to listen to. So, John, what is Moneyball about? Uh, Micah, I'm sorry. I just got to do something real quick. Here's the thing. You're 32. How about you and I be honest about what each of us want out of this? Mm. I want to milk the last bit of podcasting you got in you. And you want to stay in the show. Let's do that. Now, I'm not doing this episode because of the podcaster you used to be. I'm doing it because of the podcaster you are right now. You're smart. You get what this movie is about. Make an example for the listeners. Just be a good host. Can you do that? You know what I like about you, John? Yeah. You get on base. <laughs> You've always yes! said it. It's a line of the movie. Uh, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, I see what you did there. That was a scene. Hey everybody, welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And uh, lots of enthusiasm today. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had my I coffee, John. That. I'm ready. There you go. I've been chewing tobacco as... for weeks preparing for this. <laughs> Get, you know, it can't be bad. Uh Today we're discussing Moneyball, as you know, a 2011 sports film directed by Bennett Miller with a script by Steven Zalian and Aaron Sorkin, uh, based on a book by Michael Lewis. It talks about the Oakland Athletics baseball team's 2002 season and their general manager Billy Bean's attempts to, to assemble a competitive team. It stars Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And in my opinion, it's one of the most outrageously great sports movies ever made partially because it fails so totally to resemble any other sports movie that came before it i would say yeah um we started the podcast by talking about kind of our history with the movie mike did you see this when it came out or i feel like for most people this was sort of a slow burn you heard about it and then eventually had to go see it right or were you there from day one i don't so I, this is one of those things where I can't remember if I saw it in theaters. Um, I might have seen it in the student theater, which would have been after it was released in theaters. All I know is that I was in college and I was volunteering on the basically the film board for our school. So the, the student board that like runs the theater on campus. And, mm -hmm. you know, as such, I was absolutely obsessed with the Oscar race. And this was obviously a contender in a number of those categories. So I know I saw it before the Oscars, the year it was recognized, but I can't remember in what context. Um, but yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it was after its release because I'm pretty sure I was like, oh, a movie about baseball. Nope. And then, you know, pretty much had all sorts Let's of Let's go ahead and recommend it so i went out i eventually caught it and uh, i think i you know what john i'm not a coward you're a coward i'm not a coward i get on base um this right, is right. the best movie about sports in my estimation 
I really have to think about that one. What about uh, Field Field of Dreams? It's got to be up there. I mean, you're you sentimental. See, you're not sentimental is the problem. I said what I you said, don't... John. I said what I said. <laughs> I'm going to have to really think about that. Certainly, it's probably one of the most acclaimed films about sports. You just reminded me. I, I meant to read in the pre-roll. So this movie was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Brad Pitt, Best Supporting Actor for Jonah Hill, Adapted Screenplay, Sound Mixing, Film Editing. That's a pretty wild list yeah. for, again, a sports movie. Yeah, man. Like, you know, this is... But, but of course, a slightly elevated sports movie, as it were. I definitely did not see this at the time because I did not discover any love... As much as Mike hates baseball, I mm. sort of just hated all sports oh, in, yeah, you did. I forgot in totality. About yeah. Yeah. Until probably five or six years ago. Oh, it's 2023. Probably seven or eight years ago. Um, man, time just keeps on going. I like to going. think I converted you. I like to think that was all me. Um, I changed I, your life. You, you are welcome to think that. I, I in my <laughs> own opinion, I think it, it was actually a jump from esports to regular sports. Basically, it was getting into fighting games and getting into the narrative side of the like competitive community and then realizing that that narrative existed in regular sports. I actually would go back and say every single person in my entire life before five or six years ago, or actually maybe just my entire life at all, because I had to get, I had to come here on my own. No one ever pitched sports to me correctly, by the way, just, just for what it's worth. If you're out there and you think I'm not a sports person, if you like stories, you probably are. And you're just surrounded by people who don't know how to convey the stories yeah. of sports. That's yeah, what I would yeah. say. You're welcome. Because once you understand that, you start seeing all of these exciting things playing out and you start understanding all of these developing narratives by the by, which this movie actually, I think, does a great job of illustrating. Well, I'm yeah. sure we're going to talk about, but one of the best sequences of the movie talks about the idea of how do you stay, how do you not get romantic about sports, right? How do you not find these unbelievable narratives within this this arena, as it were? Um so all that to say, I definitely came to this movie a lot later because I think I remember hearing how it was just a really good movie. This I, I won't give you the credit for me getting into sports, but you might have gotten me into this movie. Probably. I, I can't yeah. quite remember, but I, I think you probably mentioned it at some point and I had to go listen or go watch. And it almost instantly became just one of my, I think, all-time favorite movies. One of my most rewatchable movies, I would say, too. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think that's even close. I actually... Um, think it's one of those films that you forget that when you sit down mm. and you turn it on you're gonna finish it you're gonna be yeah. way more invested than you think you're going to be um especially since you like once you know how it ends which is you know that the team loses um spoiler alert it uh you think that when you come back through it you're just gonna be like less enthralled and that is definitively not the case this movie yeah blows by for a movie in which literally nothing happens um and every single time I watch it, I'm just as engrossed as I as I was the first time. I think it it is a tour de force in terms of entertainment filmmaking. And I'm sure we'll talk about yep. that more. But yeah, it's it's a near perfect film as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't say that very often, but this movie is as close to flawless in terms of what takes place inside the movie, um, as almost any movie that I've seen. And that's that doesn't mean it's like the best movie ever made. I just mean in terms of like what it sets out to achieve, it does so in the most entertaining way possible and so effectively 
that it's hard to really find that many flaws in the film. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And honestly, we might we should just probably get right into it with that. I did have one last question because you threw a quick barb out at the sport of baseball. I just wanted to clear the air. Uh, uh-huh. where, where are you in regards to your relationship? Because you are a sports guy from way back. Yeah. Uh, big baseball head, right? Yeah. So I, I actually, so like most people, I think baseball is probably sure. the first sport I got into as a kid. Okay. You know, because you play like Little League and T-ball and stuff. And then I found literally anything else. And uh, I said, wow, I didn't realize that sports could be fun. They could be um, action packed. You caught you caught a piece of one college basketball game on TV. Yeah. Why is this fun? And, and why I are said, they actually moving? I watched golf and I was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize it could be this exciting. Uh, <laughs> why is my heart rate increasing? I, I didn't think, know this was part of this experience. Truth be told, I... I what I have come, my, my more nuanced take on baseball is it is one of the most enjoyable in-person sporting events, and I find it to be totally unbearable watching it on TV. In other words, if I'm not yeah. in a city, which I'm going to a game, I, I just can't I just can't engage the sport. I, I, I don't know why, other than it's I just think, slow, but, but yeah. yeah, that's where I land. No, I, I totally agree. I, I have, it is, I, I think it is true that in my entire life, I have never actually watched, besides when I was in person, which is maybe like two or three times, I have never actually watched an entire baseball game. I doubt I've even watched an entire inning, frankly. I feel like at no point have I ever been like, oh, what are we doing? We're going to sit here and watch this for freaking six hours or whatever. Yeah, it's it's mind-numbing. It's awful. Um, However, I I have read more about it than than not quite any other sport, but almost any other sport. In that you know, the, the book ends up going into this quite a bit, but um, it just it has such a rich amount of dialogue about it. And that dialogue, thankfully, can sort of be extrapolated to dialogue about games in general. So that's why I still find a lot of value yeah. in all of the different things I've read about it. And obviously it has so much history and it has so much whatever. I find all of that stuff fascinating. I. I, I find the meta narrative about the game fascinating. Sure. I don't find the game itself interesting at all. So uh, so we're two baseball haters going into an episode about uh, a baseball movie. Which I think Anything else? <laughs> is a high recommendation for the film. In which case, I would say we should get to what worked. Because I think this, joking aside, uh, what blows me away about this movie is that I do not enjoy baseball at all. In this movie, I, I've already used the words enthralling, engrossing. Um, it, it, it captures my imagination and my attention every time I watch it, which is just like, yeah, I don't know how you do it. So I think we should just dive into what worked because that's probably what in. we're going to talk about. So. so as Mike is saying, we kind of divide the episode into a few sections. We start with why the movie works, move on to what maybe holds it back. Then we'll have some stray thoughts later. Um, we're going to have a lot of things for why it works. Mike's right. I feel like it, it is such a self-contained perfect object to a certain point um so i don't mind kind of starting small and this is something that i think we both agree on and you've sort of hinted at quite a bit the movie is so rewatchable and there's a lot of reasons for that i'm gonna go ahead and start with the pacing because we talk about this idea a lot of how things are laid out i think what's fascinating to me about this movie is if you were to look at it on a scene by scene basis, it can be very slow. There's scenes that are just nothing but Brad Pitt sitting in a stadium staring out 
for you know 20 or 30 seconds right and nothing's happening Beautiful. technically the best what's strange about it is that in my opinion it goes by it's not a long movie but it still goes by in an instant it's yeah something about the way that the scenes are structured the way that it ramps up energy and then falls down it, like you know the trade scene is is maybe the most fun scene in the movie and it comes right at the perfect moment when you're a little bit like you know, I'm just starting to lean into the story at that point, and then we get that scene, and now I'm basically in until the end. Um, it it just balances itself very nicely. It gives yeah. you the the thought provoking moments, the emotional moments, the long somber moments, the quick exciting moments. It kind of gives you everything. It's cohesive throughout, and is just remarkably easy to watch. I mean, I guess yeah. Mike already said this. It's just unbelievably rewatchable. Um, you put this movie on and, you know, before I know it, we're on the scene where they're trying to win their 20th game in a row. Right? Yeah. Which is near the end of the movie. And, and I'm completely invested by that point. Yeah, I am 100% with you. I mean, this movie, I think maybe the, the best thing that can be said about it is that it is the definition of like pure entertainment, you know, you, you compare it to some other sports movies. No one has cancer. No one's addicted to heroin. Um, this is just a movie about like advanced statistics and baseball and it somehow works and never feels slow. And that's crazy when you say it out loud, you know? Yeah. Um, I know this is not like, I did not come up with this comparison. Uh, many people have made this comparison, but it is a, a, a pretty, real or, or like a really interesting comparison to the big short in terms of just being a perfect yeah. balance of informative but also fast-paced and entertaining in some really cool ways i mean it makes math super fascinating in a in a movie format in a way a beautiful mind never could sorry russell crowe catching strays but um it's just like these these scenes Brutal. that are that are epic exposition on the math of baseball usually jonah hill giving a monologue about it and yet it's it, it really never feels like it's bogged down mm. by that work which that should feel like that's that's it's kind of like a, it fries the circuit breaker of your brain like it, that should be boring and yet this yeah. movie feels like bam, 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 bam. Like it never feels like it gets stuck in the mud. And I think that is a testament to its entertainment value. And just like you said, the structure and pacing of the film. I will also say, and I don't know if you want me just to list all of these, John. You're the host, so you can cut my mic at any time. Um, I think the pacing of this movie largely succeeds because it just has so many singular, sublime scenes. Like there are just like five scenes in this movie that I think encapsulate what it like why we watch movies and yeah almost and they're almost spaced out perfectly like you were kind of saying just as it starts to feel like it's getting a little slower it, it hits you with something that is just like I, I have it mentally ingrained in my mind the image of for example Billy Bean turning on and off the radio as the A's lose to the Yankees in the opening scene of this film right yeah and the way it cuts to like the disproportionate payrolls and and just that entire sequence is so wonderful that yeah and i i can, I can count a few of them i kind of want to can i do that john yeah just 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 go for it yeah so yeah. Real, really quick because you just mentioned it offhand i just want to say the fact that when it's in the opening credits i mean everything about this movie is amazing in those opening credits when it starts with saying 126 million dollars versus 38 million dollars yeah. And then it fills in the names. 
New York Yankees versus Oakland Athletics. It kind of you you almost get chills from it. It's just setting up the stakes so well of like this is what this movie is about. Something that is unbelievable or sorry, it is just so unfair to look at on the face of it. And yeah. how do how do you get past this? So anyways, great scene, great moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean like I'm about to list a few and these all if you think about where these are spaced, this is really just highlighting the point we're making. Because you get that opening credit scene. Another one that sticks with me every time. The daughter playing the guitar in the shop, you know, which is eventually obviously going to get a call back at the final shot of the movie, which makes me weep like every single time. That is a a very different emotion than that opening sequence. Not that far after that, you're going to get the scene where, like you said, the team starts buying in and they start to win and it starts building momentum. And what is the momentum building around? It's building around people taking walks, which is just wild. (laughs) But that scene feels like it's so fast paced as they're explaining to each of these individual players, like how they need to make this system work, which boom, right into the win win streak, which is just some incredible use of like real game footage. And then I think the climax of the movie is obviously the home run to break the record. And I mean, is is there like, and this is kind of when I say that this is my favorite sports movie ever made. Is there a better sequence like about sports or, or maybe, like, I should say it this way. Is there a better sequence of someone playing a sporting game in any other film than this one? Because, I mean, the build harrowing, the tension, the drama of it all, the shot of the Kansas mm. City player hitting the home run as it goes completely silent. And he's watching, and he's watching, he's watching, and then, boom, it's like you see him hit the bat flip and start strutting, and immediately you're just like, in oh, total they silence, just tied yeah. the game, right? And then that, and all... you see Billy with his hands in his head, yep. and, every, and you, you feel the you feel soul crushed watching it. You Absolutely. are just right there with them, yeah. And then it just builds the Haddenberg home run, and you have the shot, you have the score, you have Chris Pratt's wonderful childlike performance, which he does better than like anyone alive. And it's just like this sense of triumph. And I'm not kidding; like that scene is why like we watch movies, and I'm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I tear up every time I see it. And then, bam, the very next line is, it's hard not to be romantic about baseball. I mean, hot yeah. damn, John. All those are great singular scenes. But what's amazing, or what I'm really trying to capture in this, is if you go through, you could probably pace those out like every 15 minutes. You are going to mm. get a scene that is I going agree. to be deeply ingrained in your movie-watching psyche. And that is just yeah. an unbelievable success when it comes to pacing this movie out. And keeping you engaged and keeping you really um, enthralled in the both the emotion, but also the the deeper conversation about numbers and you know everything else that goes along with sports in the film. I totally agree. I, I would also just kind of throw out uh, just as a general note, a lot of the I think the first half of the movie you could probably say is kind of carried by the dialogue with Peter Brandt. It's actually yeah. pretty fascinating that no one had thought to make a movie like this before in a weird way because. Just the premise, like when he gives the Island of Misfit Toys speech, right? Yeah. Or monologue is probably a better word. That premise is actually super relatable. I think everyone understands that idea of finding underappreciated people and making them into or giving them their due. Like just as a, as a single premise, I think that lands for almost anyone watching. Yeah. And and you get a lot of shout and proud scenes like that where people are like, Oh well, you don't understand this guy, and you get a, you get as the viewer to join in that feeling of no, you don't understand this guy, right? Of something's wrong with how you guys are looking at this. The premise is so 
engaging on its own. I did want to mention too, just we we're, t- we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a lot of things, but the way that the movie moves, how, how much it draws you in. I think what's also really key to this movie. And you mentioned um, the big short is also what's missing from it. I think that for a long time, the, 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 the hand of the studios or producers or just directors who had an eye towards mass market tended to force in a lot of things designed for big audiences that I think, especially with sports movies tend to drag them down. Mm. I'm talking forced love plots. I'm talking, uh, you know, generic things of kids. I'm talking actually in terms of structure, I'm talking about, ending the movie with the big giant win that gets everyone roused and basically all the formulaic things you would have done with a sports movie in the past, all the way up to the two thousands. You think of a movie like miracle are just totally gone from this movie. It's structured really weird. That scene you're just talking about, which I I guess is the climax. I was going to push on that because you know, I actually think the most important moment of the movie is the conversation with John Henry. There's like 20 minutes after that scene. Sure. Which yeah. you don't you don't think is like normal for a sports movie, right? Like you're right, you should end on the big win, but this movie doesn't. And, yeah, this, and this movie ends with intellectual Ice T narrating a ba- uh, playoff loss, which is yeah. <laughs> gets me <laughs> every super, time. Which is kind of crushing <laughs> in its own way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so it's I think Again, like the things that it doesn't do are are just as important and potent yeah. for why it succeeds. Sure. Um, we've also touched on things adjacent to this a few times, so I want to throw out there: the music's unbelievable in this movie. It's absolutely incredible. The yes. score is composed oh. by Michael Dana. Um, most I, I mostly want to call out, and the score is incredible on its own. But he, he uses "This Will Destroy You" throughout, um, which is a post rock band, an American post rock band, kind of like "Explosions in the Sky," sort of adjacent. Um, but a lot of those scenes, what you're talking about, a lot of scenes that you you look at and you think this is just some Jonah Hill talking about baseball players yeah. with some footage on the screen. Why do I care? But you get so much emotional investment out of the use of that music. Absolutely. Um, par- part mean, of the explosions in the sky call out is this was about when they were starting to score or, or their score was being used in Friday night lights as well. Mm. So I think everyone just kind of woke up and was like, man, post rock goes great with sports stuff. Why aren't we doing this? Yeah. Uh, but it's just such a good effect in this movie. I think I honestly think it's a huge part of why I rewatch the movie so much. It's so atmospheric. It's so, of a type with with the style and tone of the film. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, even, especially even that I, I put a specific note down with the score um, for the scene you were just talking about, where Pete is walking through cool. like the first rounds of the misfits he wants to hire. And he's talking about the pitcher who throws funny and the score kind of builds to him saying, this guy could cost $3 million. We can get him for 200,000. And the way that the score builds that scene like I'm getting goosebumps just thinking. I about know, it. yeah. yeah. It, it's it's it really is like a blah, chef's kiss kind of a thing, but uh, it, it truly is almost. It, it's one of those like perfect blending of score and script and performance that I don't. I'm not even going to analyze it too much. It just works. There's a melancholy to it, but there's also a build and a suspense and a and like I keep going back to that word triumph, but like a triumphantness to the way that it builds that without i don't know anything about music so i can't tell you how they do it i can just tell you how it makes me feel which is that at the end of yeah. this guy talking about a guy who throws submarine style is just looks ridiculous you want to get up and just be like 
get them. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you teach them, and and it's you. You would almost feel like the score is is set to like like you were just saying in a classic sports movie, someone hitting the the three pointer to win the big game, and this is just someone like saying, "Hey, we should sign this underrated." relief pitcher <laughs> and that's like yeah, kind of exactly. kind of wild uh but it, it really is flawless i i actually if we were ranking our takes on like what works the best i would say soon after just like that pacing conversation we have is the soundtrack i mean this is yeah, one of the one of my favorite soundtracks of any movie ever in terms of its effectiveness within the film yeah absolutely you touched on you just you threw out the word performances, so I want to I want to give you the the runway because oh. uh, I'm sure we have a lot to say on. I got a whole lot. Much, to say actually, it's it's a Spike surprisingly Jones stacked as movie the too for what it's or worth. the new husband? I mean, come on. <laughs> go, go go for it. What do you got? I mean, it's it's surprisingly stacked is is what I was saying. Yeah, I know. Spike Josie is Robin White's husband. That's amazing. Okay. okay. Um, why is Robin right in this movie? Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. I feel like she's like doing just that. cash and checks. Yeah, I feel like she's doing that as like a, you know, like they're friends outside of this or something. I don't know. It just Th- she has that like, was actually what I really assume is that she knows the director or something. I was yeah. like, yeah, I'll, I'll be in this for <laughs> she's know, like an one extra phone conversation and one scene. Yeah, it's super strange. Her and Spike Jones each just hanging out in a beautiful home. Um, yeah, no. honestly, Spike Jones does this a lot. Like I'd I have know. to look it up somewhere, but he's just in cameos all the time. I think he does just kind of know a lot of people. Well, he like, is. Hey, you want to? Yeah, want to bring you in? I know Anyways. that I know that's true about him as he does that as favors a lot. But uh yeah, so performances. Uh my goodness, I cannot believe that this cast is in this movie. Um yeah. Pitt and Hill are obviously gonna be our starting point. I think right. the bromance chemistry between these two actors is next level. And I guess we should just talk about them one at a time. But I, I want to start with that chemistry because I think when you're talking about why this film works, the primary reason in terms of performance is actually the relationship between those two people. I would say even more so than their individual performances, which are both stellar. Um, it's that how yeah. well they, like you have already said, how they can sit in a room and banter and have conversations about numbers and it can feel like an action sequence. That is all about the chemistry between these two actors. So... Let's start with Brad Pitt. This may be its own conversation, but it's also worth noting this movie is very funny at times. And a lot of the humor, in fact, maybe most of it is just the two of them talking. It's so good. The scene where um, Billy Bean's telling Peter Brandt that he has to uh, learn how to uh, let someone send someone down to the minors or cut someone. Hilarious. (laughs) I can't develop personal relationships with these guys. I got to be able to. Trade them, send them down, sometimes cut them. Which is something you should learn to do, by the way. I would never have to cut a player unless you... Oh, come on. Come on what? Let's practice. No. Yeah, I'm a player, and you gotta cut me from the roster. No. Go. What do you mean, no? No. Do it. This is stupid. Part of the job, man. Fine. Billy, please have a seat. I need to talk to you for a minute. Go on. You've been a huge part of this team, but sometimes you have to make decisions that are best for the team. I'm sure you can understand that. You're cutting me. I'm really sorry. 
I just bought a house here. Well. In Oakland. Well, uh, well. Well, it, well, that's all you got to say? My kid just started a new school. They made friends. That's, uh, well, you shouldn't pull them out in the middle of the school year. You, you should wait. What the hell are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know. I shouldn't have. I'm not going to do this. I don't think I think this is stupid. I'm not going to fire anybody. And this is dumb. Yeah, I think it's just great. I think it's hysterical. And like you said, it's just the two of them. It almost feels improvisational. I, I don't think it is, but it feels very loose and, and easy between the two of them. Yeah. Knowing knowing Sorkin, it's probably not. But at the same time, like, how could you not think it's improvisational when Pete says he hit a home run and he didn't even realize it? And he pauses and goes it's a metaphor like that feels like so <laughs> deeply like a, an improv thing or when, uh, i know it's a metaphor it's so funny or like, when billy's in the meeting and he gets to that point he says add all those up and you get to and there's silence and then Hill says do you want me to speak what would i point at you yeah and you could just feel that moment of like the frustration when you have this great little monologue going and then and then your partner just does not play just does does not pick up on it and you're like yeah we've all been there i understand <laughs> oh my gosh or uh what's the other one first base isn't that hard tell them it's incredibly hard <laughs> it's just so funny. About that. anyway it's anyway. a funny movie yeah it's got yeah. great moments anyway and but you're right i mean to i'm gonna watch watch this podcasting transition to get to get us back to brad pinch on hill it, those moments of humor in an otherwise analytical movie usually comes down to like what these two actors are doing on the screen. So let's start with Brad Pitt. And I want to actually start with Brad Pitt who plays Billy Bean with just a question for you, John, is mm. this Brad Pitt's best performance? Um, it's tough because there's a lot to take in over the years. Mm -hmm. I think uh, once upon a time in Hollywood is the closest competition. Sure. But it's close, is what I would say. I, I and and the difference is he's carrying this entire movie. He's yes, in. He is. I want to say every scene, if not every scene, virtually every scene. Yep. Um, and yeah, I I think he's he's so essential to the success of the movie because you're going on the journey with him, right? Yeah. So yeah, easily best or or top two, top three. So I only asked you that question. So I didn't hear a word you just said. I want to answer my own question. Okay. I, def I definitely think this is best for words. I, I mean, I just think this movie, he so deeply inhabits this character from the physicality mm. all the way down to like we've already mentioned, watching him just flick that radio on and off and the look on his face. That is just movie star shit, John, because that scene well, is enthralling and he is sitting quietly in a empty baseball stadium, listening to a baseball game on a freaking radio. And I don't even like baseball. And I'm so deeply engaged in the outcome of poor Billy Bean's like journey from that moment on. Right. And I think what well, it's also worth noting, Brad Pitt is so charismatic and oh my gosh. he turns on this, this in intense inner anger and rage in this movie that makes him as scary an on-screen person as I've ever seen, not scary, scary, but fun, yeah. scary. When he goes into the locker room because they're celebrating after the loss. Yes. And is losing I forgot fun. what he throws first because he throws a few things. It's losing fun. Is losing fun. No. 
What are you having fun for? You are like, yeah, this guy's gonna this guy's gonna wreck something. This guy is a force of nature. You feel that. You don't yeah. feel any of the movie Star Brad Pitt in a good way. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think what what I what I really like about this performance, there's actually like a whole lot of hand wringing and interesting conversation about Brad Pitt's career. And I actually don't have we done a movie with Brad Pitt? We did. We did Snatch. So there's like yeah. a really interesting conversation about is this kind of performance, has this always been in him and he just wasn't able to, or wasn't even cast for these kind of roles because he was basically so handsome and such like a movie star. And that now that he's older, he's finally getting to like play some of these more internalized characters, or is this something he's developed later in his career? And I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that what you see in this movie is an actor who has a perfect combination of like every ounce of charisma on earth and a performance that is entirely, like you were saying, under the skin. The rage that he shows is largely in this film until it explodes in a couple of those moments, just like in his eyes or in the way that he gives a smirk to someone saying something snarky to him. Uh, the way he gives that like sly Brad Smith smile when he's engaging with Art Howe or any of the numerous really dumb sounding, you know, baseball scouts. I think... I would say it's his best performance because this is the number one movie I can think of where he gets to use those qualities of his, those strengths, that charisma and that ability to be like an exceptional actor at someone who has a lot going on underneath the surface. It, right. This movie allows him to marry those things better than I think any other movie's done. Um, I do love Once Upon a Time. I should shout that out. But I think this movie sure. has a lot more going on in terms of like a very nuanced performance than some moments where he gets to be, he's often asked to be more eccentric or just pure charisma. And yeah, so I don't know. That's my answer to the question. But I think his performance is the foundation of the film. And like you said, if, you know, he's in every scene. So if he isn't able to play this variety of things, if he isn't able to nail the look on his face as he listens to his daughter's mixtape at the end of this movie, on top of being a charismatic superstar actor, on top of being a raging asshole, on top of being someone who is quietly resentful and it's oozing out of every part of his body, on top of being physically looking like an ex-athlete, on top of blah, 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 this movie doesn't work. And yet yeah. it does because he is able to do all of that at once. And that's amazing. Do you know, I, I, I'm, we, might be, we might just be fawning at this point, but... Uh, a great little moment that I think really summarizes a lot of what we're talking about here. Most of the movie, uh, young Billy Bean is portrayed by another actor who unfortunately I don't have in front of me, but he does a really good job. Does surprisingly look like Brad Pitt. For I know, yeah. But there is exactly one shot. Fun fact, John, uh, I'm going to step on my stray hot there, but that's actually a de-aged Robert De Niro. I, <laughs> I, I feel like that might be, I feel like, that might be incorrect, but I'm just going to roll past it real quick. <laughs> okay. Go There's a really point. amazing shot of um, Brad Pitt as the young. It's literally one shot. I don't know if you even picked up on it, but the, the last shot of young Billy Bean is when he's with the, the voiceover is that he's quitting and going to the yeah. front office. And it's just him in front of his locker with his uniform on from behind. And in that one shot, Pitt sells all of the, the sadness of that character at that moment, right? Yeah. The immense weight of failed promise is totally inhabited. And again, just one moment, he's not even looking at the screen or at the camera. He's not even speaking. Uh, and it's incredible. And I just think it summarizes all of what you're talking about. So yeah, yeah. 
unbelievable. Uh, Jonah Hill. This Ugh. is like right. This is an amazing moment for him because I want to say this is basically right before everyone sort of realized, or this is kind of the moment everyone realizes, oh, this guy has chops. Yeah. He's got everything. You know, before this, it was basically super bad and and a couple kind of smaller roles. I, I hope my timeline's right, but I, I think I'm pretty much on it. And, you know, 21 Jump Street, which is an amazing movie, but still he was mostly comedy right and he was mostly small parts in this movie he's funny but he's mostly playing things very straight yeah. and he's exceptional it's an it's an incredible character that serves as as the voice of this particular philosophy you know throughout the entire movie yeah and also develops this relationship with with the bean character and is just yeah i think it's just an astoundingly good performance and it was probably the moment i realized because this was before obviously wolf of wall street i'm trying to think if i saw it before wolf of wall street i think i did so this was kind of the moment i think for me too that you realize this guy has so much going on he's yeah so capable as an actor no it's wild because and it's exactly what you said and because he still has some comedy mixed in but he makes this and Wolf of Wall Street within two years of each other. And mm. I I don't know. You I feel like you're underplaying it. This was this wasn't just kind of a career changing performance. This was like truly one of those like I had zero idea that this guy could pull this off. Um yeah. it was between those two movies in particular, but I think this one even more than Wolf of Wall Street, because he's still kind of a clown in Wolf of Wall Street you're just watching this movie and you're like, this is understated. This is, um, in a weird way you see where it comes from because he, he does this thing in this movie where he's, he's acting so unsure about himself until he is empowered by another person. In this case, Brad Pitt's character. And then he'll just come in with like this crushing confidence of he's like, I know I'm right. And you know, like I think about the, the parking garage scene where the entire, sequence leading up to that he seems like he just doesn't want to talk he wants to be quiet he wants us in the back he doesn't want to be noticed and then the moment brad pitt's like no tell me what you think about this he's just like i'm on to something and that there's like confidence shoots out of him and it's weird how you can like see hints of that in the awkward and like shy characters and over the top sometimes characters and you know when you think of like super bad the over the top confidence of his character in that movie or <laughs> his weird awkwardness and like get him to the Greek and some of these other comedies he's been in, but to watch that just like be so ramped up to 11 for dramatic purposes. I don't know. This was, this is a game changer of how I even think about his potential as an actor. I mean, this yeah. movie, it, it almost, it, I remember, so this is just like a thought I remember having at the time where I'm like, this can't even be real. And then you suddenly have to, in a moment, like relitigate where you thought this career was going to go. Cause like it went from, pretty much with Moneyball overnight from this guy is a hilarious sidekick character in a lot of comedies to, is this going to be one of the great dramatic actors of the next like 20 years? Yeah. yeah it's, it's almost Which unheard I think of. I mean, to make pretty that much kind totally of lives up to, yeah. so abruptly and so powerfully to explode on the scene from comedy to drama in such that, that dramatic of a way. Can you think of another actor who made this quick of like a jump into like that kind of tier of, dramatic actor i i really can't that's why i kind of i i want to sit with this for a second because i do think this is very rare very rarefied air. yeah 
I'm sure. I mean, it's tough to say. Can you think of another actor? Because I'm sure there's there's tons that we we're missing. I mean, obviously Robin Williams did. Yeah, and uh, we talked about one. Jim Carrey has too. Um, but Jim, like, it's interesting Jim, that Jim Carrey's felt like a little more gradual. Like you know, the Truman sure. Show, and then you get into like Eternal Sunshine. This is just like a, a one. Anyways, I mean, interrupt. But this just feels like so much more of a one eighty than like the slow testing of the waters into drama that like a Jim Carrey goes through. I think Robin Williams is a great. Great example to call back to. Sure, sure. And and but and you're right. I think it's also funny because this is just a lesson we see over and over again that the instincts that make people good at comedy, it's it actually ends up, I think, often make making a lot of sense that that kind of person gets the same thing that you need to do to make drama work. Right. They're different, but not that different. If you're really good at the one, you can translate that. I'm not saying it's yeah. easy because not that many people have done it, but um but yeah 100 percent. i think he's i think he does an incredible job um talking about people i guess maybe just doing favors like you know i'm, I'm still a little confused by this one <laughs> philip seymour hoffman is in this movie <laughs> you said you said offhandedly a second ago you know jonah hill may be one of the best dramatic actors lost of the next 20 years i think philip seymour hoffman obviously one of the best dramatic actors the last 20 years just playing this weird little role as a as a baseball manager he actually did this a lot though grumpy asshole yeah (laughs) grumpy bald like overweight which by the way the we're gonna get to the real r how later but among other things he's not bald and like overweight like he's he's (laughs) a perfectly handsome normal guy yeah um so lots of weird things with the character that we'll get to but beyond all of that i think psh does an amazing job and again it's just kind of weird he's in the movie um, I don't assume you have, do you have any thoughts on him besides that? No, I just think I love when he gets to just kind of be gruff and that's all that he's yeah. like the essence of gruffness in this movie. Um, and every scene, it is a he, testament to his strength as an actor. Cause you forget how much fun Philip Seymour Hoffman can be. Yeah. Cause fun is the, the, the furthest word from your mind when Art Howe is on the screen in this movie. Yeah. And it's so, I mean, I, I, I think some of the funniest things in this movie is when he's interacting with Billy Bean and he's just like, he is, has like this constant vibe of like, I don't have time for this. And it's like really, <laughs> really funny and how uncomfortable just about every line of dialogue that they share together is. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. You're like, what? This could have been any number of just old white men. And you went with one of the greatest living actors of all time. It's so strange. It's but so it's weird. great. Yeah, but it's great. Um, there's a lot. I mean, everyone else is really, really good. Chris, pa- Chris Pratt. We already mentioned Robin Wright. Um, you, also, special shout outs to Brent Jennings as Ron Washington. Also, yeah. one of the funniest characters in the movie. Stephen Bishop, David Justice. Uh, lots of great, just great actors. I mean, I it's wanna, just solidly. It's also extremely well written. But I want, I want to shout out to. Want to shout out to real quick. Don't need to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, first, Karis Dorsey. I think gives an exceptional kid performance. Yeah, hard to do. You know, I think there's a lot of this movie that succeeds because of like the way that that relationship between father and daughter lands, which is which is impressive because it's not given a ton of time, quite frankly, in the movie. I think it's given the perfect amount of time in the movie, um, but it still feels like it has some emotional weight to it. And I think a lot of that is because she's not a, you know, a lot of the time with kid actors, she's not a, a, a net negative. She's actually a positive to the film. So that's really good. Absolutely. I think Ken Medlock as Grady Fusen uh, truly gives off the most boomer energy I've ever seen. 
of anyone in a yeah. movie. He's the uh, lead scout, and he sucks, and he does that super <laughs> well. So just wanted to shout him out too because he is quite the heel in this movie, and I hate him. So it's a much. real, it's a real. <laughs> somehow Palpatine has returned moment when yeah. he's on the radio show. Yes, and and yes. talking talking all this crap about them at, like once he's not even on the staff anymore and you're yeah. just like man I hate this guy yeah um yep. Yep. yeah 100% uh yeah all the performances are amazing I just have a couple other and like these are just broad movie things yeah, so I, I don't know do necessarily how long we have to how long we have to dwell on them but the cinematography is excellent um it's part of an era of movies that it was interesting how not theatrical looks in a lot of ways. It's a very grounded, very blue tone movie mm. uh, shot digitally. I'm pretty sure meant to look not in some ways. I think what's fun about it is the way that it's stylized by not being overly stylized. Right. Yeah. It's these still kind of medium shots. So in a sense, part of you is like, this looks not very exciting, but that's actually why it's so fun to watch. That's what makes it so captivating to me in terms visually um and you get all these beautiful huge shots of again just billy being in the middle of a stadium billy being out in a car in the middle of an empty parking lot like really emphasizes the the southern california geography or middle california geography um really uses it utilizes it very nicely yeah Um, i'm with you and then, you know, maybe goes without saying, it's extremely well-written. A lot no. of what we were saying about the actors, yeah. I think you could also just say, oh, it's just really good writing and directing, right? Aaron Sorkin, not not too shabby of a writer himself. Mike and I were talking, there, there's some, it, it's kind of hard to distinguish online exactly how much of the movie is written by Aaron Sorkin, as weird as that sounds. The first script was by Steven Zalen. And there's reports, even some from Sorkin himself, that he maybe kind of just touched it up, not necessarily wrote it, wrote it. Regardless, it, it is very well put together and the dialogue is exceptional. So who cares? Yeah. It's extremely well written. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I actually, I would say I'm, I'm pretty much fully out on Sorkin these days, especially whenever sure. like a movie gives him an opportunity to share his like political views. Um, because, you know, talk about boomer energy. My boy's got mad neoliberal boomer energy. Um, yeah. But in a movie like this, where it just focuses on like individual people and then also systems and in a less high stakes environment like sports, I actually think like what makes him exceptional as a writer really shines through, uh, which is mm-hmm. the, the quirkiness, you know, the quick wittedness, the ability, as we've already said, to make two people talking feel like there's action going on when they're really just like punching numbers i mean these are all things that he's so good at um and i think broader than even that one of the things that he is still really good about is writing about systems i think he does a a half decent job when it again when it's low stakes uh do not do not watch the the chicago 7 movie it's a nightmare um (laughs) but when he's looking because like that's what makes this movie so interesting from a writing perspective is that its structure you know, it's a sports movie, but it focuses less on like an individual's underdog story and focuses more on like the systems of the game. And yet it's enthralling because it makes that choice, which is such yeah. an interesting choice. I also think from a writing perspective, it was a really interesting choice to structure this movie around Billy Bean's own processing of like his experiences, like you said, at failing in the major leagues. Yeah. This misguided understanding of how we evaluate human beings and ultimately how it leads to this like innovation 
from someone wounded by that system's flaws. I think that's all unbelievably um, just powerful script writing uh, to make. I don't want to take away from. Yeah, I totally agree. I I, so real quick on the Sorkin thing, too. I was going to mention this is also a great one two punch with the movie that came out one year before this, which is uh, The Social Network. Yeah. uh, Which is, by the way, a crazy two years for for Aaron Sorkin. I I had to double check that just to make sure. And I was like, yeah, man, 2010 Social Network, 2011 Moneyball. Not my boy. Um, but, but strengths in what you're talking about, right? Like that yeah. movie also by Sorkin, I think succeeds because he's not, he doesn't really get the chance to go on his political rants. By the way, I'm, I mostly agree with him, but you're right. It's just the boober energy of it though. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, my yeah, God, yeah. dude, relax. But you're, but again, that movie is mostly a character study. This movie is mostly a character study mm-hmm. and that's where they succeed. Uh, I am going to really quickly segue though, from your comment about structuring the movie partially around Billy Bean's personal story without wishing to take away from the writers. What's cool about that is that that's actually borrowed from the book. Yeah. Um, the, sure. the book does basically the same thing. And on that note, I also want to mention that this is also an example of a good adaptation. In fact, one of the best adaptations I could think of, um, notably because of how much it's different than the book. I actually was, when I was searching for a way to describe the relationship between the two pieces of work, I, I settled on the idea that the movie is almost like a fable told by someone after reading the book. So essentially every single factual detail is like literally incorrect, but that doesn't matter because it's, it's extrapolated the lessons of the book and turned it into a narrative filled yeah. with the same characters mm. if that makes sense. that's good some that people will tell you that's bad i think that's brilliant because yeah. you can't actually because like so to, to clarify for anyone you know if, if you don't know and actually mike i forgot to ask have you read the book i have not no i'm a failure okay high recommendation for what's worth it's not for everyone a lot of it can get a little bit bogged down in the analytic side of things but mostly i think it's exceptionally well written but it is very different and I think the biggest difference is that the the narrative doesn't line up quite so neatly because Billy Bean had actually been doing this for three or four years by the time we get to the point he's at in the movie. Um, also, some of the characters are actually multiple characters that have been changed or condensed or whatever. So it's a lot more messy. And But again, all of the lessons, the whole point of basically getting the point of how do we evaluate players and how does that jut affect how we make decisions it's like if you took that and just created a narrative around that idea. So the narrative isn't, again, isn't strictly speaking true, but this is a different medium. And, and yeah. the narrative of the book wouldn't work over a movie. It might work in a TV show, but in an hour and a half movie, you need to do something totally different. So I just want to shout that out. I think it's a great adaptation, which is not to say, again, that it's very faithful to the book, but that it understands what the book's doing and renders that effectively in a different medium. Um, which is just really cool and actually extremely rare. It's, I think it's very hard to adapt something well, especially when adapting it well involves changing huge aspects of it. Yeah. And and this succeeds wildly. So, um, so yeah, I, that's actually the last thing I had for why it works. But do you have anything else, Mike? No, I'm done. Let's let's take a big um, old dump on this movie. Well, and we we already talked earlier before we recorded that we don't have too much to say on what doesn't work, but. Ending by talking about the book is a great segue Yeah, because the movie does still say, does the movie actually say based on a true story? I don't remember if it does, <laughs> there's some 
big <laughs> details that, Got that some get a little bit messy. Let's go ahead and talk about by far the biggest one and actually the most perplexing. I really do think I, I, I really am confused why the movie does this. We already mentioned Phyllis Seymour Hoffman plays Art Howe. Art Howe is the manager of the Oakland A's in the movie has this wild pushback against Billy Bean, right? Like they are just at it. He's, he's arguably the main antagonist of the movie. He is. Um, yeah. Given that he's, he doesn't want to put in Haddenberg. He, he's always pushing back against him. You know, he's, he has all of this negative energy. It's just like really it's bad, bad locker room energy. It's just no good. Yeah. Um, spoilers. That is 100% incorrect. Art Al yeah. was super on board with the whole Moneyball thing the whole time. He may or may not have personally seen the game the same way, but he never pushed back on it. He was like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. I'm, I'm on board and, and was just super there for it. And it's just very perplexing that the movie yeah. literally re- inverts his character. 100% opposite motivation. And... Uh, the the only thing I, I was actually just rereading the book before we did the podcast, and I did remember the only thing is he did end up going to another team after this, and there was disputes about his contract where he went to a newspaper and was like, "Hey, I really wish I had a long term contract." That's actually not untypical. The book even mentioned that's not untypical in sports. And, no, super common. Um, and again, within the within the whole context of the Moneyball thing, was super on board with that. So. It's just it's really perplexing. I did. I don't know why they even did it. I feel like the story would have worked without it. So yeah, kind yeah, of expe- weird. I don't get that part. Especially like I said, I mean, with the 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 scouts, there's a heel in this movie. There's a villain. There is a voice yeah. for disagreement and roadblocks and refusal. And I I guess in terms of storytelling, it, none of those scouts actually have any power. So maybe they make art how the a villain because they have to have someone who actually can actively impede, you know, right. You, this need, you need the roadblock that forces Billy to do, to take action. I, I is probably the storytelling justification. Yeah. But, um, but, 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 yeah. but, but I don't think that's a good argument. And, and I'm with you. Like, you know, it, there's actually without getting into a tangent on ancient near East kind of history, this is very much like an enlightenment shift when we think about like how you tell stories about real people. You know, I think pre-enlightenment, there was a deep understanding that you could tell like biographies in a sense that captures the essence rather than like concrete detail in exact ways. Um, And that that was more important that if you're trying to pass on like the story of a person, you want to be trying to capture who they were and why they mattered more so than they were born exactly on this date. And then this exact thing happened, this very kind of sterilized data driven form of like historicity. Right. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about with this movie is this movie does an exceptional job at capturing like the essence of what this movement was about and the people involved in their vision and how dramatic it was and how it changed things and how it was deeply altering the landscape of like uh, basically a social construct that is this entire baseball thing. Right. And -hmm. I think it, it does that artfully. The problem that I have, and I'm, I'm actually for that. I'm like 100% for that yeah. with adaptation and historical films. And every time someone's like, well, did you know that William Wallace wasn't blah, blah, blah? I'm just like, shut up. Like, no one cares. But, yeah. but, 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 I think there is a problem that takes place when you villainize someone who was not a villain. 
Like that's, I think, yeah. where this kind of like liberty in storytelling goes wrong. It's one thing if you over heroicize somebody, you make them more lionized than maybe they were. You make them a little bit more pure or a little bit more kind or whatever to kind of give your story a hero. But when you take someone like you're saying who is like largely uh, on board and you just make them mm. into a, a, a roadblock, a villain, a, a bad guy in a story. And let's be real, way more people are going to see Moneyball the movie than read that book. You're actually like just yeah. like jacking up this person's legacy for no real reason. And I think that's that's a pretty crass misstep. I just, I just don't think that's yeah. fair. So It's pretty yeah. egregious. Yeah, I'm yeah. totally on board. Um I only have I only have one other thing on, on what doesn't work. And if I'm honest with you, this one's petty. This one is not a real problem with the movie. Is it baseball? I'm just being the sport. We're of just baseball? being. Uh, that's what you would have written. Mike just wrote baseball and just said <laughs> enough said. Um, but it's actually similarly stupid. I just got to say that at this point, I've had ten years. Eh, that might be too much. I've had like eight years of big media trying to tell me that Chris Pratt is this likable movie star when he's not. <laughs> And so, and, and so my like this guttural so instinct, hateful. if he comes on screen, even though he's great in this movie, this is a great part for him. It's an early Chris Pratt. He doesn't actually do a lot. He's mostly kind of awkward guy energy and plays it really funny. Has a great exchange with, I think it's David Justice, right? Yeah. Um, where, where they have the, what are you afraid of? The ball getting hit at me and he laughs. And he says, no, that's actually what I'm afraid of. So he's great in the movie. Yeah. But again, just from a sheer petty, this perspective, when he comes on screen, I'm just like, God, stop trying to make Chris Pratt happen. I'm over it. I'm done. Give me anyone else. Anyone with even a shred of charisma. Please See, put the them shame. on screen somewhere. That's the shame is that this is like what he's perfect at. Uh, like, yeah, it, it's like these all weird the little parts. All the Marvel and, and action hero junk that they've tried to cram this dude into, or I should, that makes him sound like he's a victim. He has tried to cast that persona himself. <laughs> um, sure. Does not work. I'm with you. But when he gets to like play a bit role like this, like he's perfect in this movie. He's this great. Is like, he's so good. It, it yeah. has like the Parks and Rec vibe to it, kind of. And it's great. I was going to say, great. very similar to Parks and Rec energy in a way. Like kind of like lovable goofball screw up off to the side, not yeah. center frame. Like, oh, you care about this person? It's like, no, I don't really. Let me, I'm let good. me, thank you very much. Let me step into stray thoughts and ask you a question, though. And this yeah, is like a r- real question: Have you ever rewatched this movie and remembered he was in it? No, like I'm, ever? I, yeah, absolutely no joke. I am shocked every single time. <laughs> yeah, like is that I'm Chris like, Pratt? <laughs> well, and even further because I, I, I don't quite know how to articulate this without sounding crazy. It doesn't look very much like him. No, like well, that, I, I'm pretty sure the first time I saw goatee. the movie, I already knew of Chris Pratt, but I didn't think it was him. I just thought yeah. it was some guy. And then at some point I'm like, oh, I'm, I feel like that might be Chris Pratt. And you have to sort of think about it. Uh, so, yeah, it, I don't I don't think about Yeah, it totally comes by surprise every single time he shows up in this movie. Dude, what That's is that thing on his face? What is that goatee? What is he doing? Ugh. I don't know. It's weird. It's just weird. It's it's uncanny. Anyways, so that's a very petty, small, what holds this movie back, yeah, but I'm sticking yeah. by it. Um, I don't know, anything else, Mike? Or are we, no, we good no, for I straight think thoughts? In the end of the day, this movie, in terms of, like we've already talked about, as an object of cinema, what takes place inside of said object, I think is pretty much flawless. So Yeah. 
I'm, I'm on board. Let's actually take a quick break and then we'll come back with Stray Thoughts. Hang tight. Hey guys, welcome back. In this part of the podcast, Mike and I each have just a few stray thoughts that we've collected, either trivia about the movie or things that came up while watching it or afterwards. Uh, and we just go back and forth. So I'm going to start. Um, one of my pet peeves in movies and all media, as a matter of fact, is when they do the thing of like, oh, this person was offered a big number as a salary, and then they don't tell you the number. And I distinctly remember that the first time I watched this movie, I was really annoyed because I thought the movie was going to do that with his whole Red Sox salary. Yeah. yeah. And then in the closing, like in the little epilogue num- thing, it gives you, I think it says like $53 million or something. I, I hope that was I think it's like a hundred million. It's, it's insane. Oh, yeah. It was it's some crazy. Amount. <laughs> Ironically, I don't necessarily remember the number, but I remember when it came <laughs> on screen, I just kind of thought like, oh, okay. Well played movie. You you checkmate. You, you circumvented me. You checkmated me. You knew. You knew what I was sitting here thinking. I was just I was just getting seething, and uh, Bennett Miller saw through it. So props to him for that. Yeah, uh, building off of that, let's litigate this, John. Should Billy Bean have gone to the Red Sox? Because like I mean, I think it. Like I mean, being a present father is cool and all, but it's the Red Sox, you know? I mean, it's like it's the Red well, Sox. <laughs> I actually feel like the biggest thing, um, the you know, we could have even mentioned this earlier. Another detail left out of the movie, and actually I think he even left out of the book, is that he, and I don't know the timeline when this happened, but eventually he became a part owner of the athletics. Yeah. Which has got to be worth a little bit more in yeah. terms of money. Yeah, they did. It worked, um, out. it worked out for Billy Bean. Let's just leave it at It that. worked out well for him. Um I feel like from a historical perspective, I'm sad he didn't. I feel like that makes a much more fun narrative. Arguably, that's the point of the movie, that he doesn't make the decision that makes the fun narrative. Um, And the book actually has a similar... This whole That whole sequence is actually pretty close to the book, where he meets, he kind of... In the book, it's more clear that at one point, he he is going to do it. He's like, yes, I'm in. And then he changes his mind, which is actually, in a sense, more interesting. Yeah. Um, but but I think would have taken too long in the context of a movie. Um, and in the book, it's pretty clear that he changes his mind because he's just like, what am I trying to prove? Like, like I've already, in and of itself, I've already arrived by by having the conversation. Yeah. Um, but all of that to say, yeah, of course he should have. I think, why not? Like, like what a boring universe we live in that he didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, follow-up question. Follow-up question. Would that that mm. scene with the Red Sox center have been better if the owner was played by Ben Affleck from Goodwill Hunting? Just saying. I think the Retainer. answer is obviously yes. <laughs> you suspect. I, honestly, you could replace Ben Affleck's character from Goodwill Hunting in most parts in this movie, and it would be an improvement. <laughs> okay. And that's, you know what? This is a great movie. I'm just saying, like, that character always plays, Mike. Fair. Always plays. Checkmate. Um... You know, I, I, I'm not totally sure timing-wise when to do this, but I'm just going to do it now. Shout-outs to Tyler Kersat or wherever you oh, are. No. Mike, Mike, worst hang. No. Here's what I got. Billy Bean during an uh, Oakland Athletics baseball game, and let's go ahead and say when they're losing. <laughs> okay. 
or Lu- or Llewellyn Davis. Now, on the one hand, let's just be honest here, kind of physically violent, right? Like yeah. this, you know, throwing things, lots of intimidation, big, strong, tough guy. Sure. But you got to think there's still something kind of charismatic here. There's there's that's still that's still interesting. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm going to leave it up to you, but I'm just trying to lay out the facts here. Llewellyn Davis, huge bummer. Let's just, kind of a bad you know, locker room energy. Let's just uh, let's just go through the facts. So things that I mm. enjoy, things that I enjoy. I enjoy working out. I enjoy yep. long car rides to see minor league teams play. Um, you enjoy I, fatherhood, being a good parent. Yeah, I enjoy fatherhood. Things I do not enjoy: being uh, pushed to get an abortion. Yeah. Someone losing my pet. Um, someone yeah. st- stealing from me. Someone generally being a nihilistic drain on my life mm. energy at all times. Um, Lewin Davis. So yeah, uh, we're saying Lewin Davis by far. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's easy. I think this this one is an easy call. I and and you know uh, yep. it's it's tough for him. We're we're gonna hope he pulls through next episode. Uh, so, but yeah, I, I think I think it it writes itself. So here's why I'm upset. So I had a straight thought, same same bit, because this bit will never die. Um, and I wrote this one, Tyler, if you're listening, I wrote this one for you. Um, because I'm not sure if you know this, John. Tyler, I found this out like three weeks ago. Tyler is a diehard baseball fan. He watches like the majority of, of like the Cardinals games. I guess that's a team in St. Louis or something. Um, <laughs> I know it is. I'm just trying to take shots at him. I was going to say, I was going to say, we all know. We all know. You're not full like how you want. But here's, here's the one I wrote. Tyler, this is for you. Uh, worst hang, Lewin Davis or the entire sport of baseball? <laughs> so so you're saying, would I rather be in a room with Lewin Davis or in a room watching, <laughs> watching any baseball, baseball game? game. Yeah. Just but like baseball. any baseball game. Yeah. That's On actually TV. much tougher. That's a much more difficult thing. It's hard. Um, baseball has a lot of history, you know. <laughs> Tra- big American tradition. Um, y- I'm going to say baseball. Dang. I'm not Ooh. even going to justify it that much. Question. I'm just going to say it. Was that the closest that it's ever come? Like, yeah, it was tough. Like, was a, I think Baron Harkonnen was pretty tough too. But, <laughs> but uh, it's tough to imagine in a room having to watch a baseball game, but it's <laughs> even tougher to imagine being in a room hanging out with Luan Davis. So yeah. easy peasy. Done. Um, good times. Man, this bit will never die. No. Um, I'm never going to get tired of it either. But everyone else will. You, so. That's fine. We're, we're, we're good with that. Um, I have to kind of refocus here. Okay. Kara Dorsey played uh, Casey Bean. You already mentioned her, Billy yep. Bean's daughter. In her audition, played the, the, guitar, the song on the guitar, a cover of another song that my mind's going blank now. And the director liked it so much, he put it into the movie twice. That was why, that's where it came from. It wow. wasn't in the script. It that. wasn't, yeah. It was from her doing it in, part, in the audition as kind of like a, you know, fun thing that her character might might do. Uh, so kind of just a cool little tidbit. Fair. Very fair. Um, yeah, so pretty much every aspect of this movie's production story is, is, is like bonkers. It's insane. Um, I think my favorite fun fact about it is that this movie was originally a quasi documentary made by Steven Soderbergh Mm. in which it was going to cut the real people 
into like I guess dramatic reenactments, I guess. And he was like it's, deeply down the road in making this film and it became like a huge quagmire that got canned until basically Brad Pitt fought for it and had it completely remade. But that's like super interesting to me. There's like a version of this movie that's a, like almost a documentary that I'm actually kind of like in really interested in seeing, especially I'm by Soderbergh. I'm so interested in seeing that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think especially with the Soderbergh thing, it's a huge what if. Now, at the other end, we get this amazing movie. So it's not like there's a universe yeah. where this movie sucked and that was just a, a real bummer. Um, so it's not too bad, but but it is a big what if. You really think like there is something really fascinating about that idea. From what I've heard, from what I gather, it would have been very sort of in the similar vein. Did you ever see the movie Bernie? starring yeah. Jack yep. Black. Yep. Um which is a great movie by the way. We should do that one time by the way. Man, um, that's a deep cut. But very similar uh structure though, right? That it it's a true story. It's got actors pay- playing a lot of the biggest parts, but it also has real interviews with a lot of the townspeople yeah. about the real human being and it's shot in the real place. So I imagine it would have been similar to that, which again kind of weird, but probably very effective kind of an interesting era because you also think of the big shorts around there this is clearly something a lot of kind of interesting directors are thinking about that time is the idea of mixing in a certain reality with the fiction um which is yeah like i said kind of a cool idea um i i also really would like to see that movie um you did steal one of my stray thoughts so if you want to go ahead and, and just go ahead with another one yeah here's a weird one dimitri martin playing pete what's that guy what? what yeah so originally when they were casting this movie dimitri martin not jonah hill was cast to play pete and i want i you actually to feel think, like that could have worked really well i want you to think about dimitri martin and brad pitt i don't know if the word <laughs> chemistry comes to mind when i say that out loud but it's think- interesting it's very very interesting i'm interested because i feel like i'm always impressed and surprised when i see him doing things i agree like i always i always think like oh i didn't know he could do that so so i can't quite envision it but i also feel like i would have been pleasantly surprised you know what i mean sure um obviously i'm happy that we got jonah hill yeah uh but that's that's a really interesting what if it is i was gonna I really should have put this in what doesn't work, but uh, it's too much of a offhand thing of a small thing to mention. The owner of the Oakland A's is played by a guy named Bobby Kotick. Mike, do you know who Bobby Kotick is? I know that name. Yeah. What is he is the CEO of Activision Blizzard, yeah, one right. of the most notoriously evil companies yeah. in America, yeah. yep. who's being, currently being sued for all kinds of harassment claims, being investigated by the state of California, all this horrible stuff. I, I guess that my only explanation for why he's in this bit part is that like 10 years ago, none of this was at the forefront of like no one knew any of this. No, they, and they were, were just kind the of a company. They were a golden child company. So it's just like a huge rubber. It's same energy when you see we were watching Home Alone 2 over the weekend uh, with my nieces and nephews. And there's this random Donald Trump cameo that you're just like, well, can't do anything about that. That's a nightmare. So kind of similar energy. I'm a little bit like, why is he in this movie? And and it just kind of came up when I was doing research that was like, oh, yeah, he's just kind of there just randomly in that part. Uh, Just all time. Not good guys. So, yeah, cool. Don't know why he's there, but good times. 
Anyways, what do you got? Um, this is pretty well known, but it, I did not know it until I did research on this movie uh, after probably, actually, it was probably like the second or third time I saw it. Um, but it, I think it's pretty widely discussed, but this whole, like going back to the idea of this being an interpretation, not like literal history, you know, the the person that Jonah Hill is betraying, Paul DePodesta, like had issues, I guess, with his betrayal in the book. But it's kind of like yeah. up for debate because there's also like speculation that he just didn't want to be in the spotlight because he's kind of mm. a, a very um, isolated personality. But ultimately, he declined having his likeness used in the movie. So the character like named Peter Brand does, is not a real person. It's like a composite yeah. of a number of Bean's assistants. I don't think that's a problem at all. But it is just like really yeah. interesting because, I mean, I'm sure – a lot of people were like me were like, dude, this Peter Brand guy is pretty awesome. I bet he's like written some cool stuff. And you Google him and it's like, oh, he's not real. He doesn't exist. <laughs> he doesn't exist. But, yeah. <laughs> so One of those weird things. And, and it was certainly weird the first time I read the book because I, I saw the movie first. I guess I could have mentioned that. So it was weird reading the book initially that I, I, I distinctly recall waiting for the Peter Brand character to show up. Yeah. And within like two or three chapters i'm just like you know i feel like this character doesn't exist <laughs> and that's about the time i looked it up i was like oh that's what's happening so yeah, yeah you're right it's not bad it's just kind of interesting it's like oh you wouldn't necessarily expect that and it and, works, and you're totally by right way, by the way that it's yeah it works so much better in the movie like if this was like five yeah. interns playing this kind of role this movie doesn't work so kind of sure drawing that into a singular person giving them great chemistry at brad pitt brilliant choice yeah but um, I considered putting this in what works or under cinematography, but I, I like this detail so much that I wanted to spin it off as its own thing. Um, for the entirety of the movie, whenever you're seeing a baseball game, you're looking at it through a TV screen, like what? a filter until, oh, that's interesting. until Billy Bean finally goes in person to see oh, them. Dude. And from that moment on, it's real footage. It took me like three times to notice that. But once you do, that. you realize that's such a cool thing. Yeah. And, and I, I, and yeah, it just boggles my mind. Like, and to be clear, like training footage or whatever is real footage. But like of the actual Oakland Athletics games, you never see a game that's shot in person until that moment in the rest of the movie. It is. I, have never I just thought that was that. really cool. That's super. Cool. Yeah. I've never noticed that before. That's great. That's great. Really, really clever details in this movie. I love that stuff. Again, the cinematography is amazing. And also, for what it's worth, the first time he goes to see them in person, one of the cool things about it is just how down-to-earth, again, it's shot. Like, yeah. they're playing in the big stadium, but it's just there's no soundtrack or anything. It's just kind of him standing there and them throwing around the ball, and the camera's right up on them just like they're normal guys. It's just really well-made and really cool in terms of how it's shot. Yeah, great. Totally agree. Um, we always say that plot holes aren't plot holes. You don't catch it while watching the movie. I'm not going to lie. This is a plot hole, John. Yeah. Uh, when, okay, Brad, when, when Brad Pitt or Billy Bean flies to Cleveland to not make a trade. And then later in the film, he flippantly just trades players for nothing over the phone for like <laughs> the rest of the movie. Really, like really, really strange. And I get you. Ha he has to go because he has to meet mm. Peter, but it's so obviously not how like sports work to any yeah. degree like he's not flying to cleveland if a trade's not in place and they're not coming up with like final basically agreement and 
letter of the law and all that stuff. This is just not how sports. It really work. makes no sense. Any of it works. So I yeah. got it. I don't know if I caught it the first time, but I definitely caught it like at least the second or third. Where I'm just like, why is he here? And then they don't well, make a it, trade, which is just, it's super strange. <laughs> and it is doing, I would say it is doing something else in terms of narrative, which is like, it's subtle, but I think part of it is also like demonstrating the wage gap or, or, or the money gap between the big team and small team just through their sure. offices. Sure, sure, sure. So like, cause you know, the first shot of the Cleveland uh, team is just like this amazing, huge open plan office with all of this high class stuff around and, then you spend the rest of the movie in the Oakland Athletics front office, which does not look like that. Um, having said that, you're totally right. It actually, in my mind, is also just betrays the the aspect of the book or of, of how messed up the timeline of the movie is compared to the real timeline of the book. Which, by this point, once again, they were already well in their Moneyball thing. Actually, one of the most fascinating chapters of the book is where they talk about how two of the three guys they lost, he was super happy losing. They were actually, yeah. he was losing them as part of his own money ball construction of them becoming overvalued players. Giambi being the exception that he's one of the greatest players at the time. And that was a real hit. And then yeah. there's a whole chapter just talking about Giambi, but you're right. I, I think it, it portrays like, like when you know that you really see the workings of like, okay, we needed to somehow, get him to meet this character who shows him the light of Bill James and whatever. Yeah. So, so it, it doesn't really make sense, but what are you going to do? Yeah. That's like, um, that's like the whole, uh, Pena thing. And I mean, I'm not a baseball person, yeah. but Pena in his rookie year was not like a gym. Like he was good, yeah. but he was not like considered this can't miss player. And he was actually a pretty bad hitter and yada, yada, yada. So it's it like, wasn't even that big a deal. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Last, my last stray thought, is a question. Mike, are you the parent who makes the overly decadent Sunday? Or are you the parent that the overly decadent Sundays are hidden from? Uh, or do you think you swap roles? Do you think you do you, do you get in and out of this? So I have my suspicion, but I'm curious here's, what you what here's you the funniest thing on earth. This is this is gonna shock you. I would like nothing more than to make my daughter the most extravagant, the most ridiculous sunday on earth like whipped cream and all this stuff mm. uh my daughter is the pickiest eater on earth and if i put <laughs> she tasted whipped cream it said this is yucky it has never tried it again all she wants That's is strawberry ice cream with sprinkles on top that is it and if I put anything else on that sucker, she will refuse to even taste it, my dude. So you so, don't even have the possibility. No. You can't, can't even, even exercise your desire. No, she's like, give You're me like, plain strawberry ice cream with some sprinkles on top or get out of my face. <laughs> it gets brutal. Man, I, I, respect the, I respect the game. I respect that, that she's right there, knows what she wants, is, is like, I'm not messing around with any of this kid kid nonsense. But that's a huge, that's sad. I, 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 I feel know. bad for you now. You're sitting here yeah. like, hey, would let's she, go crazy. And she's just like, no. Would she, <laughs> don't, would she I don't told want me to. that whipped cream was disgusting. I was like, are you even a human child? Like, are you even, like, this is, exists for two years. You're like, I don't understand. I don't get it. Oh, actually, um, the first time she tried ice cream, she said it was gross and wouldn't eat it for like six months. So. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> she likes it now. But no, I don't get that. I don't have the opportunity. Dude, wait, wait, where uh, do you a, think I fell on that? 
Oh, I thought I thought you would have been surprisingly the like, hey, let's not have too much fun here. Let's rate it. Because no, I feel no, like no. in a weird way, you can kind of slide into the like, hey, guys, there's such a thing as too much fun. You can yeah. have that role in that voice sometimes, you know, 100 percent. I'd say I'd play that role in 99 percent of my life. But with my my sweet my sweet daughter, I am just like, let's go. Let's go nuts. You know, it's so much you're fun. like, we, we got we got this. We're having fun. OK, yeah. fair enough. Fair enough. That's surprising. Yeah, I got one last one, John. And actually, it's mm. kind of serious. I don't know why. There's just like, and I, I guess this is like a question that's not going to have a question mark. I'm just interested if you had if this impacted you the same way. I think of the concept of winning the last game of the season like a lot more than I probably should. That's like probably yeah. of anything in this movie that has become stuck in my brain the most. I, and I don't really know why. It's just like the way that they explain band upon that theme and then how it kind of comes back to in the movie i just think of that all the time does that ever mm. th- th- did it hit you in that way am i crazy no i i think i think about it a lot i think about the line a lot which i interestingly i feel like the movie goes out of its way to refute later well, it, honestly I, this might I even be a, it as a as a life philosophy like i don't believe it well but it well, comes well, to my brain specifically yeah. i was gonna say specifically the line he says to our of if you win the if you lose the last game of the season nobody gives a shit right and again ironically the movie itself i think tries to refute this later on but you're right it's a concept i can't get out of my head um yeah and the book even goes into in an interesting way too the book focuses more on the idea of how frustrating it is that playoffs are so meaningful to most people when playoffs are the ultimate expression of the randomness of sports. Yeah. I think there's, in fact, I was just reading this chapter and hopefully I don't get the statistic wrong, but I think they say that like you could expect the worst team in baseball against the best team in baseball. You could expect the worst team to win a playoff series three out of 10 times, like 30% of the time, or actually I think it might be higher, like 40% of the time. Cause that's just the nature of baseball. The margins are actually very small. And so they talk about that a lot in the book about how frustrating it is that they get entirely judged on the basis of the one thing that they can't control. Um, but yeah, it's a concept that, that I certainly think about a lot. And if anything, I think I try to, and this really, I think does segue into what we wanted to use as our dialogue. Um, I, I think I try to use it as a self correction of when I notice I'm doing that, I feel mm. like something's wrong, right? Yeah. That that it is so easy to think like, well, let's cut to the chase of what's the last result. And that's how I judge the entire process. And this is, again, where I, I don't want to keep playing the the book is better card because it's not. They're both very good. But the book dives into this a lot in a really interesting way because part of the whole story of the book is about how some players and the book would argue the best players are process rather than results oriented, right? Yeah. They don't look at the the end result. They look they're continually asking themselves, well, how is the process? Because if the process is right, then eventually I get the result that I want. Yeah. Or I more often get the result that I want. Um and so I, I think as a as a pithy version of that concept, the last game thing is really valuable. Um and yeah, in, in that context, I agree. It's something I absolutely think about a lot. Yeah, awesome. Love that. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. 
Do you want to go ahead into it then? Because I, I think like this is what's so, you know, next part of the podcast, we just basically Mike and I try to zero in on some deeper element of the movie that we wanted to talk about, um, possibly relate, possibly, but not necessarily related to spirituality. And this was something that we were kind of vaguely thinking about is this idea of, you know, I think I think one of the core themes of the movie is that idea of how do you judge performance? And, and how do you judge or, or, you know, how much do you take results versus process into mm. account? How much does winning in and of itself matter? I, I don't think I was I don't think I necessarily internalized until, you know, maybe one, maybe the eighth or ninth rewatch, which was still several years ago. But I don't know if I totally internalized how important it is to the movie. Um, that last conversation with John Henry, where basically I see the entire last act of the movie as basically saying, you know, we idolize this idea of winning. Obviously, yeah. that's the whole point. We Most people would say that's the whole point of sports. That's the whole point of competition is winning. Um, Billy Bean even says this. Actually, Mike, if anything, I think I've internalized more often or I think about more often Billy Bean's line where he says, I hate losing. I hate losing so much. I don't even really like winning. I just hate losing. Yeah. yeah. And I think the book actually would agree with that assessment of Billy Bean, but then would also say that that attitude is why he failed as a player. Yeah. Because he couldn't ever get out of his head the results side of things. He, he couldn't ever just look at things from the, the presence side of it, of just, it's not about the result. It's just, how am I doing right now? What is happening right now? Keep entirely in the game. Um. So I know that was a lot of different things I threw at you, but but do you, do you have any thoughts on that or any questions on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, obviously I do. Um, I think it absolutely is engaging in that kind of process versus results concept, and it's it's engaging it in a way that's kind of even more fundamental in terms of talking about how hard it is to change in that mindset. Mm. Like when you get into this very clear definition of what winning is, then almost everything outside, everything else gets entrenched, right? We, we yeah. have this very hard definition of this is all it means to win at something. And then basically how we've always achieved that quote unquote win becomes just like concrete. It becomes almost impossible to shift any other way of of the process, like the process itself becomes completely unimagined. It just becomes assumed and presumptive and then stuck in the mud. I mean, I think you're right. I think that last quote sticks with me all the time. I know you're taking it in the teeth out there, but the first guy through the wall, he always gets bloody, always. This is threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. But really what's threatening is their livelihood. It's threatening their jobs threatening the way that they do things. And every time that happens, whether it's a government or a way of doing business or whatever it is, the people who are holding the reins and have their hands on the switch, they go batshit crazy. But yeah, and you watch it tracked of like the scout conversations where it's all this intangible nonsense and really like superstition versus this transition to like hard metrics and actual like a willingness to study the process and to see what's working, what's not. You know, that move from nonsense about intuition and trusting the gut and all these kind of contrived statements to like 
an actual reflection on like how how do we go about doing this rather than thinking mm. of like the result we're going to think about what is the process by which we engage this game and how deeply that is resistant and how deeply ga- the gatekeeping and the opposition to data and science this could actually just be like a conversation we're having about the shift to like modernity but that's a whole other thing yeah. um but all of this becomes central to this movie but what i love about it in terms of how that interplays with like process versus results is that what it gets to and what what really makes the stuff entrenched which makes it so hard to change both in systems and inside of ourselves is that it gets to this idea that like the fundamental problem with our thinking is very rarely that we have the wrong methodologies or the wrong answers is that we're asking the wrong questions, right? Yeah. We aren't Ooh, even, that's good. Yeah. We are so deeply focused on winning that our actual questions are like fundamentally flawed. And because we're asking the wrong questions, we get obsessed with like these small tinkering of like, like I said, small changes in methodology, small, small changes in strategies without realizing that without the right questions, we're just going to run around circles. We're going to keep doing the same stupid stuff over and over and over again. And we're going to be miserable. We're not going to succeed in the ways we want to. We're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to be any healthier. And it's kind of like the system is going to keep producing the same results, which is this like concrete staticness. Um, and it's a mess. Does that make sense? Am I making any sense? No, it, it totally like, makes sense. Yeah. I think it's it's funny because you're you're latching onto a theme that you don't even know you're latching onto because it's much more in the book than in the movie. One of the most interesting chapters of the book, actually, the, the book has a whole chapter dedicated to Bill James, and we won't go too much into that because it's outside the scope of this podcast, I think. But one thing I did want to call. So if you don't know Bill James, they they actually do mention him in the movie, but it's yeah, pretty brief. Yeah. Just that he kind of started the entire movement of what's called saber metrics um, by writing about baseball in this very, very um, cohesive, coherent way and looking at it from these, this analytical point of view. But one thing, one of the book's analysis of his writing, first of all, is that he was an exceptionally good writer, which is why he had such an impact. But I think the, the book's observation that I just found so fascinating is they say, the key thing wasn't necessarily his conclusions in and of themselves, but the questions he was posing and the methods by which he was going about answering those questions. Mm. That was the revolutionary thing, yeah. not necessarily the results. And I feel like that's right there with what you're saying, right? That it wasn't even this, it wasn't even necessarily, oh, I need to, you know, this old thinking was wrong in this way or whatever. It was just like, well, what are we even how are we even approaching the problem? What what avenues are we taking? What are we looking at? How are we conceiving of the problem? Which yeah. actually is a line in the movie. Again, the movie almost feels like a fable in the book when Billy's talking about you guys aren't even looking at the problem correctly. I think that that is, and you're right, there's a certain modernity uh, conversation in there as well. Um, but But yeah, I think that's something that I find endlessly fascinating but also endlessly applicable because it's yeah. amazing how much inefficiency we create um and i say inefficiency that's a very like scientific economic sound phrase beep, beep, but boop. yeah but but how, how much um just think th- we don't make things work as well as they do because we refuse to adjust how we're looking at them yeah right? yeah and yeah. and i think that is one of the ultimate kind of lessons of this thing as a quick personal anecdote 
I've been um, playing a lot of chess over the last year, right? And I think a, a fascinating example of this is, you know, the process by which I've been trying to improve at the beginning was, as we've said, very results oriented. Like the only metric I had was, did I win or did I lose? And if I lost, I did badly. And if I won, I did well. And, you know, reading different things, tips and, and guidelines and psychology stuff about sports and whatever, a lot of it basically boils down to something as simple as what you're talking about. Well, yeah. Don't look at, do you win or do you lose? Ask yourself questions about your own game. How could I have improved here? What is, what's a smaller goal of, of noticing these kinds of situations, of noticing this overall strategy or, or thinking about this general landscape and trying to adopt in a weird way. It's weird because at the one hand, you're trying to be more present. You're trying to be within the game rather than casting your mind forward to the moment of winning or losing. But you're also trying to think about it in a more honest way, right? And and analyze it more objectively, yeah. I, I guess, is, is as simple as that. Um, but it's, it's like I said, that's actually, I, I think that level of it is just strikingly applicable because most people don't do that. Most people are very, I mean, even in American culture, you think about how prevalent the phrase bottom line is. Like, mm -hmm. we literally fetishize the idea of like well it matters most what the result is and everything else doesn't and it's like yeah uh, it's just not really true and doesn't really improve you or get you anywhere ultimately i would say um, yeah so yeah absolutely I don't know. yeah and it, it it's wild because i mean obviously like you already pointed out that there's a dualism to our culture but also i think just naturally to us as we develop as human beings that you have to overcome or you're just going to become a bitter entrenched angry or apathetic person, um, which is almost always like win lose, and and really we prefer the clarity of win lose systems in games, and um, yeah, and and thus it's it makes a lot of sense that we kind of prefer those in our own lives, even when they're not working for us. And I think that's like that's like the daunting part about this, both organizationally and personally, is like a thing that we are looking at through that lens that's black and white, win or lose, could be absolutely not succeeding in our lives like it could be actively inhibiting us from being healthy and whole people and yet there's such a deep comfort to it and such a deep clarity to it that we will still choose it over and over and over again and in fact like we already mentioned we'll we'll resist it even trying to change like yeah. and, and you know this i mean like i remember being a part of organizations in the state where like you can have a conversation with someone where they clearly have like this tape of like they have every answer to every question about like why they choose to approach a problem the way they do like again their methodology but if you ask them why is this important at all like but why is that the problem we're trying to fix you would literally watch them like break and that was actually the most subversive mm. and honestly the most defensive they got because it was that yeah. that kind of a shift in thinking is like it feels like an attack. It feels like a very deep and almost personal affront um, <laughs> because this is so deeply wired in how we see the world and how we think about ourselves and ultimately the framework to which we engage everything from our job to our personal life. And that's true for, I'm sure us too, as I'll just speak for myself. Um, you know, I could have every answer for your life about, or it, that you could ever ask me about like the way in which I would approach what I see as something that I need to control in my life. But if you then ask me like, but why do you feel like you need to control that thing? 
I would probably have an existential crisis. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that framework is so deeply ingrained and so hard to change, even like even if I know it's not healthy for me. So kind of a tangent, but but I think you're spot on. I mean, I think that shift is critical. You're talking about growth. And it's also just one of the hardest shifts to make because there is almost a a bot a baseline foundational like resistance that will take place in us because of how deeply ingrained it is in in most i say most people hey guys thank you so much for listening uh, we do have a final question Mike and I have each prepared for each other. But before that, we wanted to let you know that next episode, we are going to be talking about Bernie, the 2011 black comedy crime biographical film. I don't know why those genres were written in that order, but directed by Richard Linklater. Uh, in a first for the podcast, this is a movie that Mike has actually not seen. Going in so, blind. So, John, you question. guys will be on the same journey as him if you want to check that out. Um, I question. can recommend it. I think it's a really good movie. Um, but does this mean, that is wait, next wait. episode? John, John, what does this mean? Does this mean you're going to do Barbarian next? Nope, never. <laughs> Give me any non horror movie and I'm in. No, any non horror movie. Barbarian next week on the podcast. Nope. Okay. Uh, Mike is doing a solo pod on that one. Okay. I, I would. Don't don't tip me with a good time, John. <laughs> Final question. So, Mike, I know that you run in a few fantasy sports leagues. I think basketball, football, maybe. Is that it? Oh, big baseball. Big fantasy. No. I mean, <laughs> obviously. That's it. Obviously. That's yeah. It. That's it. Um, would you classify yourself? Do, do you think of yourself as, as the more money ball side of the – fake manager or do you are you shooting from the hip are you a gut gut thinker go by the heart what do you think yeah it's really funny um because it's the answer to your question is which of these two things do i have more success in um i have more success in fantasy basketball in which i am way 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 more money ball and i mean there's a lot of sure. nuance to the scoring in those fantasy basketball leagues it's more category based it's not so much like just points you just get points and try to get the most points so you can do a little bit more number crunching. Uh, no one cares about this in a podcast format, but I'm very good at that. I'm very good at like flipping a star player and getting, you know, four guys who essentially do what that guy does better and being able to build a team out of some pretty um, misfit toy kind of players. In uh, fantasy football, I uh, I star chase and I really uh, <laughs> love drafting players and trading for players that have big names. And then I am devastated every year when they, disappoint me and get injured and uh, apparently i'm terrible at it because i never win so wow that's I a guess... that's a brutal self-assessment but I, I i appreciate the duality of man contained within you yeah that... well, i do uh, think i do think a part of it is i just know more about basketball like so i get sure. how you can build a team like a, a competent team around like shooting percentages and who takes what kind of shot, not just raw statistics, mm. right? Not just like points, rebounds, assists, but like a deeper dive. I think in football, I just don't probably get the sport that well. And I'm like, you know what? I saw that guy catch a 90-yard touchdown once, so I'm going to take him in the first he round. He must be good. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah baby. I, I, I lost to him last year, so I better draft him this year. <laughs> like, On I that note, I was going to point out, I think there's a certain 
I, I personally, I, I don't necessarily do fantasy leagues, but I definitely follow a lot of sports and stuff. I think there's a lot, there's a degree to which the the latter approach can be more fun in a weird way, right? It can. You I enjoy. More. Yeah, I, I know that when I've done fantasy, um, not leagues, but what's it called, fantasy brackets. I've done that for for tournaments for different yeah, things I follow, sure. and I always go in trying to be like. I'm going to play with the mind. I'm going to play with the head. I'm going to be smart about this. I'm going to really look at results. And then when it comes down to it, I always play from the heart, Mike. And yeah. I got to tell you, I always do bad. It's always, it's <laughs> always a nightmare. And, and like everyone, I and it's just like, I'm like, Oh, but if this guy wins, it'd be the greatest moment. And I think he's got it in him. And of course he gets destroyed. And, and then next time I'll, I'll be different. And I never am. So yeah, I will say this. It's not my approach. I will say this because our podcast is now about sharing fantasy sports stories that everyone cares about. Yeah. Um, I, (laughs) I, I definitely started one in four one season and, Mm -hmm. uh, was being a big baby. So I was basically rage quitting. Um, so I, I, I loved Cam Newton at the time on the Panthers and I traded all of my good players for as many Panthers players as possible, whether they were good or not. Uh, okay. And Cam Newton went on to have an historic MVP season, and I actually went on a nine-game winning streak because the Panthers were that good. And it was stupid. And it's just a reminder so, that fantasy is stupid. It takes no So what skill. you're saying is money ball is a lie. Like, exactly. you should play from the heart. Yeah, Exactly. Because some idiot's going to roll up with eight Panthers players on his roster and crush your team that you work so hard to think about. Um, Beautiful. So, yeah. That's Beautiful about story. Right. Yeah. Okay, here's what I got for you, John. And this is actually like, uh, I'm going to let you interpret this however you want. Okay. Um, What non-sporting environment would you like to see a Moneyball-style story told within? So Hmm. I'm going to let you run with what I mean by Moneyball-style and whatever environment you pick. I mean, in a sense, I have a cheat code because this is... Video games, God no, 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 not that. Uh, because this is a James Cameron genre. Well, one second. This is a genre unto itself. I think that that, and I feel like these came out not quite concurrently. This this is a few years later, Moneyball. But this is basically what Freakonomics is all about, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think like largely is kind of like, and then and then the podcast after or whatever. So all I can think about is stories from that. Like I, I loved them talking, for example, about how do you incentivize good grades? Like, can you, or more to the point, can you incentivize good grades with, um, with finances? Yeah. Can you, can I, can I buy people performing better in school? I think what I would love to see it applied to is uh, fraud. And I'm saying that because I'm a really big, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by fraud. I got really into the Theranos thing. I read the book yeah. and watched the documentary and stuff. And there's a great bit of the documentary on Theranos where there's an, actually, he is an economist talking about how people can justify lying to themselves. Right. And I'm just fascinated by that idea of almost that economics approach of, you know, what are the circumstances looking at trying to look at things while asking different questions that are more probing without trying to start from the perspective of what's good and wrong, but instead, why does this play out the way it plays out? What gets someone to a point where they're able to ask these or where they're able to, to do these kinds of things that we take 
for granted as being immoral. Um, because it's such an easy answer, but like, oh, it's a bad person, but also just not a very complete answer. It's like, well, sure, I guess, but that doesn't really explain how we got here. You know, I think there's a more fascinating thing beneath that. I would call that the money ball approach, because again, like you said, it's basically saying, what are we overvaluing and undervaluing? So you think about a, a work culture, it's like, maybe we overvalue charisma of a leader. Maybe that's not that yeah. important. I don't actually know if it is. Maybe that's more important than we think. But that is the kind of environment where I'm like, maybe this is these are things that we don't think about quite right. And huh. there's an interesting story within that. Yeah, that's um, great. So I don't know. Yeah. Love that. High recommendation on those on that Theridos documentary, by the way. If if you're like me, I, I love the that fraud. I stuff. love I love the dropout. So can't complain. Yeah, there there you yeah. go. Um well cool, Mike. Any any closing thoughts? Moneyball. He gets on base, John. That Brad Pitt, he gets on base. He gets on base. Well, Mike, well, Mike, thank you uh, for the discussion. As always, I'm Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you on the next episode. Bye-bye.